Matthew 26, verse 47 through 56. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we look to you this morning, that, Lord, you would teach us and guide us, you would lead us, you would encourage us, that you would rebuke us. Uh, whatever is needful, O Father, for our growth and grace, we ask. We ask, O Lord, that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to uh, impress these truths upon our hearts, O Father. We, we look to you, we look to him, we, we look, O Father, that... Um, that our, our dependence is truly upon you, Lord, if we are to understand what we've read. Uh, if we are to be changed by what has been read, O oh Father, uh, we acknowledge this morning our, our clear dependence upon you. So, Father, work in our hearts that we may will uh, to do your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if we have any boxing fans here this morning or not. I don't think we do. I'm not sure. Maybe one or two. As soon as I mention it, I do see a couple of smiles on the faces. Um, probably smiling last night's uh, fight, the, uh, uh, the Mayweather, uh, what was his name? Uh, Pacquiao. Pacquiao's. I got it right. Uh, Pacquiao. Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao. Uh, Floyd uh, Mayweather. Uh, called by many the fight of the century. And it always kills me when people make claims like that. We're only 15 years into this century, but this is the fight of the century. It kind of reminds me of the cinema critics. You know, every January we hear from a cinema critic, you know, it's January and, and uh, you should come and check out this movie because it's uh, movie of the year, you know. It's only January, but this is movie of the year. Uh, maybe we should watch a couple of movies before we make those kind of claims, but uh, um, this is supposed to be fight of the year, and those who are boxing fans and sports fans have been waiting for this event for actually quite a few years. Uh, they held a press conference, I think, if my memory serves correctly, there was only one press conference for this fight. It was held in uh, March, something like March 11th. Um, what I am clear on is over 600 members of the media attended that press conference. Uh, there's millions. I, I, I read to the tune of $300 million resting on this fight. 
That's a lot of money, almost a half a billion dollars resting on this fight. And uh, uh, as uh, the two boxers were interviewed, uh, um, they were asked, you know, is this, is this personal? And uh, it seems that the response was pretty much unanimous. No, nothing personal. This is about the money. Uh, the fight is indeed about the money. Um, uh, fight of the century. Uh, I read in the Wall Street Journal Friday that 11,500 people paid $10 apiece just to find out what each boxer weighed upon the official weigh-in. Uh, I learned I learned it for free on Saturday. One was 145 pounds, the other one was 146. I saved 10 bucks. But we see the extent of the anticipation uh, of this fight. Now, most of you know me well enough to know that I don't give a nickel, I don't care a nickel about this, about this fight. Uh, there must be some other purpose in using this uh, for an introduction. Well, there is. Uh, as we look into um, the Garden of Gethsemane, this morning we see that a, a fight is about to take place. Uh, we see an entanglement is about to take place. Um, we could think back to verse 31, which we looked at uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We looked at that verse quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. We've learned that it's a quotation from Zechariah 13 and verse 7. We've learned that the speaker in that verse is the Lord of hosts. We've learned that the shepherd in that verse is Jesus. We've learned that uh, Jesus must be struck, uh, that he will be struck uh, ultimately by the Lord himself. Uh, this morning we learn uh, really a lot about the second causes of that striking. We learn about some of the instrumentality that was being used uh, to strike Jesus. In terms of background, let's review a little bit about where we've been. Jesus takes his disciples, uh, verse 36, into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he uh, leaves eight of his disciples, uh, we presume, by the gate. Uh, our text tells us, verse 37, he takes Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. He goes into the garden a little bit further where we learn there that his soul uh, begins to be troubled. Verse 38, he says to them, I, I take that at this point in time, that would be Peter, James, and John. Uh, he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Last week we spent some time developing that. We saw that Jesus is in absolute agony at this point, uh, so much so that he asks Peter, James, and John to remain where they're seated or where they're at he instructs them to watch and uh, to watch with him, which of course would involve prayer. And Jesus goes a little further and falls down on his face. And it is there in verse 38 where he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We learn from what comes next. Uh, Jesus probably prays for about an hour, at least on this first initial prayer. He returns to the disciples to discover they're sleeping. Um, he returns back to prayer a second time. Uh, then he goes uh, back to the disciples, discovers they're sleeping a second time. That brings us to verse 45, where he has already prayed a third time, and now he's returning to the disciples, and he says to them, sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour 
is at hand. Now, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, perhaps you're familiar with a phrase that takes place over and over again in John's Gospel, and it sounds a lot like this language here, uh, hour is at hand. Uh, the phrase, depending on the translation, goes something like this, uh, his hour had not yet come. Uh, it's usually couched in a particular narrative where Jesus uh, uh, is facing opposition from his enemies, and he supernaturally eludes them. And then John says that for his hour had not yet come. And we see that phrase repeated through John's gospel. Well, here in this text, we hear from Jesus' lips, my hour has come. This could make us think, actually, uh, about a scene in another garden. The Garden of Eden. But what takes place in the Garden of Eden? Satan himself comes into the garden, making use of the instrumentality of a serpent. He tempts Adam and Eve. He's victorious with his temptation. They fall. And then God enters into the garden, correct? And if we think of verse 15, what does God say in verse 15? He's speaking to the servant. And he says, I will put enmity between you and between the offspring of the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. We learn of a future battle, don't we? A battle that ensues. Because as soon as we go to Matthew 4, we already begin to see this enmity between two types of people, between the people of God and the people of the world, or the people of God and the people of the devil, if you will. The Bible only describes two types of people. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either in Christ, a child of God, or you're out of Christ, apart from Christ, and you're a child of the devil. There's only two types of people, and we see this enmity that transpires all the way through Scripture. But in back of that, there's a battle that is yet to be fought, isn't there? A long-awaited battle that's ultimately between the offspring of the woman and the devil himself. Now, who is the offspring of the woman? Who is the long-awaited offspring of the woman? He is the Messiah. He is Christ Jesus. And the long-awaited fight is underway. It's underway. Verse 47. In fact, why don't we back up just a little bit to verse 46. We'll go to back to verse 45. Jesus comes to his disciples. He finds them sleeping. He says, take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us rise, be going. See, my helper is be my, my betrayer is at hand. And as Jesus is still speaking, Judas came, verse 47. One of the twelve. That's an important little phrase right there. We'll return to it in a few minutes. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. 
He came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Uh, the battle has begun, and our text is uh, very rich with uh, instruction in exactly how this battle is being fought. Uh, in fact, this morning, what I hope to do uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit is point your attention to uh, two forms of weaponry, if you will. Uh, Satan's weaponry, uh, the weapons that Satan uses to advance his cause, and Christ's weaponry, uh, the weapons that Jesus uses to advance his cause. Uh, let's start with the negative, shall we? Uh, because the positive is much more fun. Uh, looking at the negative, we see how is, how is, how is the devil entering into this, into this fight, if you will? What types of weapons is the devil using? I, I think the first thing that should be said here is hatred. As we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, we've been seeing the fury and the hatred towards Jesus on behalf of his uh, opponents escalating, haven't we? Uh, going from simply silencing him to publicly refuting him to publicly humiliating him to destroying him. And we have watched his opponents become absolutely consumed uh, with destroying Jesus. Uh, they're infuriated by Jesus. And we can see that hate mounting. Uh, where is that hate originating from? We need to understand that these people are instruments in the devil's hand and that that hatred that's being exercised towards uh, Jesus is satanic hatred. And out of that hatred, out of the weaponry of that hatred, flows all kinds of ugly things. Uh, most obviously, betrayal. Betrayal is easy to see here, isn't it? What is Jesus announces that his betrayer is at hand. While he's still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. Now I've been thinking about what to say about this, how to develop this, and I... I I, I've wrestled with this a lot. How do I develop this? And I took a break yesterday just to cut the grass, and I was cutting the grass and thinking, what am I going to say about this? This is so absolutely disgusting. I'm not sure what to say about it, other than to say it's so disgusting. Judas was with Jesus. When Jesus transformed the bread, a few loaves and a few fish, he transformed and fed the crowds. Judas was with Jesus when he healed the lame and he healed the blind and he healed the sick. Judas was with Jesus when Jesus preached those unbelievable sermons. Perfect sermons. We don't get perfect sermons. This sermon's not going to be a perfect sermon. We don't get perfect sermons. Judas got perfect sermons. One of the twelve, he betrays Jesus. So we see hatred, we see betrayal, we see deceit, don't we? What are these guys doing? They're sneaking around in the middle of the night. Why do they got to do this in the middle of the night? Because they don't want to do it in the daytime. They don't want people to really realize what's going on. 
So we're going to sneak around in the middle of the night. That's what they're doing, sneaking around in the middle of the night. And we're going to see more deceit when we get to the trial, aren't we? When we pick up next week in verse 57. So we see this hatred. Out of this hatred, we see betrayal. We see deceit. Notice that they come to Jesus with swords and clubs. There's some of the devil's arsenal, isn't it? Swords and clubs and weapons of all kinds. Swords and clubs. Why? We have to ask, why so many people? Why, why so many people? And why, why all the clubs and the swords? In fact, Jesus even makes a comment about it, doesn't he? Uh, back in, down in verse 55, if you look there with me. Jesus said to the crowds, if you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? It's almost like Jesus said, he's looking at all of this and he's like, really? <laughs> I, I openly spoke in the temple and in the streets and you were able to do nothing. And that's very much connected to what Judas, the betrayer, says. We can see this when he says, notice the instructions that he gives to these wicked men. He says, the one I'll kiss is the man. Seize him. You see that in verse 48? Seize him. Why the instruction? Why do they need to be told to seize him? That's what they're planning on doing. It's because Judas has seen Jesus supernaturally walk out of these things time after time after time after time. And I think we can read between the lines and, and almost think that Judas had to have had a conversation. He said, listen, you guys need to understand something. This is no usual man you're coming after here. Man, I'll tell you, there was one day when we were on the brow of the hill and they grabbed Jesus and they were going to throw him over the cliff. And I'm going to tell you what, he walked out of there like he was in control. He walked out of there like he was in control. That's because he is in control. When I kiss him, don't waste any time, fellas, if you want to get him, seize him. And they took him seriously. The clubs, the swords, the soldiers. We don't know how many people were here, but there were probably hundreds of people here to capture Jesus, to seize Jesus. So we learn a little bit about the weaponry of Satan here, don't we? I don't want to work on that no more. Uh, let's, let's look at the weaponry of Jesus. As we can learn an awful lot about the weaponry of Christ here. And remember what I said last week, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the humanity of Jesus. Make that distinction as I talk, or you're going to get confused in many places. We see the humanity of Jesus in this text like really no other text. Uh, the humanity of Jesus is really coming uh, to the fore here. Uh, in terms of the human person, Jesus. Remember, Jesus has a dual nature. He is fully God. He is also fully man. And in terms of his human nature, how does he go into this battle? The first thing that we should say is love. Jesus comes in in love. Remember last week I spent a lot of time developing the perfect love of Jesus? And for that we go back to verse 39. And there we see Jesus. He's facing the wrath of the Father. And he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we can appreciate that comment, can't we? And we develop that. 
Jesus realizes. Don't think of Jesus as just simply dying here. That's, that's, that is part of what's going on, but that's not the whole thing here. Jesus understands that there's more going on here than just simply his death, of simply passing from this life into the next. Jesus has to endure the wrath of the Father. He's being called to endure condemnation. He's being called to endure wrath. I shared this with a couple of you that this week I came across a, a quote um, from a, a very godly minister of a, of a former era. And he made this claim. He said that we, we should love the Father so much that we would be willing to be condemned if he asked us. And when I read that statement, I just got, it, it, it stobed me. I, I have to confess, I kind of rejected and recoiled against that statement for a while until I came back to this text. Jesus, as per his humanity, is given a choice in the garden. One choice is to not go through with this. Not submit to this. The other choice is to endure the condemnation of the Father for the sins of His people. What choice does Jesus make? He makes the decision to follow the Father because it's more important to Him to the that He follows the Father. He loves the Father. You see the love that Jesus has? He loves the Father so much that He's willing to even be condemned before He would displease Him in any way. And he loves us so much. What is hanging on the balance? You know, in the boxing ring last night, there was $300 million on that fight. And in this, what is hanging in the balance? Our souls. Untold millions of souls hanging in the balance. Jesus comes into the garden with love that's incomprehensible. Love that's indescribable. So he's, one of his weapons is love, isn't it? And just that, as hatred, hatred yields betrayal, it yields deceit, it yields rebellion. What does love yield? It yields submission, doesn't it? It yields steadfast faithfulness, doesn't it? I'm not going to turn my backs on these guys. I'm not going to listen to any of this nonsense. Well, I should turn my back. And one of them is going to deny me three times tonight. The other one's going to, the rest of them are going to scatter here in just a little bit. They can't even stay awake while I pray. Jesus doesn't think like that. He doesn't do that at all. And what a lesson that is for us as we think about our shortcomings, as we think about our failings. Let's drink deeply from the garden. Let's drink deeply from this to see the compassion and the patience of our, of our Savior. But don't do it presumptuously. Don't presume upon this patience. May this patience uh, change our hearts and make us want to be like Christ, that we too uh, would be unwilling to disobey Him for any reason. So we see love issuing forth in surrender, issuing forth in submission, issuing forth in steadfast faithfulness. We also see the Word of God all over the place here, don't we? Jesus told his disciples back in 30, verse 31, you're all going to fall away uh, because of me, because it's written, you know, back in Zechariah 13, 7. 
And then as he is seized, he's very careful to tell everybody. He said, listen, you know, in verse 54, uh, or uh, even in verse um, 53, um, verse 54, I'm sorry, he makes a reference that these things are happening, scriptures, that Scripture must be fulfilled. In verse 56, he says, all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see that? Those references to the Scriptures. Now, there's something going on here that we've got to dig a little bit to understand. And it really is the chief thing that we have. If we only leave here with one thing, this is what we need to leave here with. Let's ask this question. Again, speaking about the humanity of Jesus. We're speaking of His human nature. Let's ask ourselves this question. How does Jesus know that tonight, Zechariah 13, 7 is going to be fulfilled? How does He know all of these things must be fulfilled that must happen to fulfill Scripture. How does Jesus know this? And again, only think of the humanity of Jesus. How does He know this? John, uh, many verses in, in the New Testament answer this question. John chapter 3, verse 34 is one that gives us a lot of insight into this. For that verse tells us that Jesus is the one who is sent by God, who utters the words of God, and we're told that He has received the Spirit without measure. He has received the Spirit without measure. We might think of prophecies such as Isaiah 61, uh, where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Jesus has received the Spirit of God without measure. Who is it in the Trinity that opens up the Word of God to our hearts? Who is it that is principally used to teach us? Who did we just get done praying to that we might learn from this text of Scripture? It is the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? On this very night in John 15, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come to His disciples. And when He comes, what is the Holy Spirit, who is the Helper, what is He going to do? He's going to open up the Word of God to the disciples. He's going to cause them to remember things Jesus has taught them. He's going to give them words to speak. He's going to empower them to understand. Where is Jesus getting this information? in terms of His human nature. Well, Jesus is is in many ways like the prophets of old, but He surpasses the prophets of old. The prophets who had uttered all of these texts of Scripture that we had, they did so as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. But they received the Holy Spirit in measure. They received the Holy Spirit for a particular time to carry out the particular task that they had. Jesus has received the Holy Spirit without measure. Indeed, He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, the thing we need to remember here is that Jesus, as per His humanity, is being governed by the Holy Spirit, and He is being guided by the Holy Spirit. And this is the chief uh, weaponry in His arsenal. He knows what's going on. That's why He doesn't need to flee. Notice in verse 46, what does he say? Rise, let us get out of here. No. Let us be going. Here's here's my betrayer. He's not taking me by surprise. I know he's coming. Judas gives him that kiss. You know, earlier this week, I, I read somewhere where the, the phrase, you've heard the phrase, the kiss of death. Uh, they say that that has its origin in this narrative. Uh, 
Judas gives Jesus that disgusting kiss. Uh, this is one way that the people in this culture commonly greeted uh, one another, is when they haven't seen any, each other for a while, they would give each other uh, a kiss uh, and don't get any ideas. Uh, after the service is over, a handshake will be fine, okay? That was that culture, don't, just a little bit of joke there. Uh, but yeah, handshakes are fine. Everybody agree with that? Um, <laughs> William Henderson points out that Judas didn't just come up and give Jesus one kiss. That he came up and he kissed him over and over and over again. And a careful study of the, of the parallel passages really developed that. That disgusting kiss. That betraying kiss. And Jesus responds to Judas by saying, Judas, would you be, Luke tells us, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? In our own text that we come to this morning, Jesus says, listen, do what you came to do. But did Judas think he could fool Jesus, who is guided and governed by the Holy Spirit as per his human nature, who is God in terms of his divine nature? It's not possible. So we see his weaponry, he's being guided his weaponry is love. His weaponry is this guidance and governance of the Holy Spirit. But his weapon is also the Word of God, isn't it? And we need the guidance and the governance of the Holy Spirit in order to understand the Word of God. Way back in chapter 4, in Matthew 4, when uh, uh, Jesus is being tempted by the devil, how does Jesus combat what weaponry does he use against the devil? You guys know the answer to that. He uses the Word of God, doesn't he? He knows the Word of God because he is being governed and guided by the Holy Spirit in terms of his human nature. What does that teach us? It teaches us volumes about the weaponry that we should pick up, doesn't it? Now, notice what happens here. At some point in all of this, verse 51 tells us, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant. And we know who he is, right? John tells us who he is. Tells us that Peter is the one who drew his sword. Luke tells us that the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, should we take up the sword? In other words, Jesus, should we bear arms? But before Jesus could give an answer, Peter's already doing it. What's going on here? What's going on here is something that we really need to pay attention to. Satan is always trying to tempt us to take up his weapons. What's in his arsenal? If we looked at his arsenal, what's in his arsenal? Swords and clubs. What's Peter doing? He's pulling out the sword. He's pulling out, he's pulling out the devil's weaponry. He's going to try to fight the devil with his own weaponry. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus said, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Put your sword back in its place. And this is what we're always tempted to do. The devil is always trying to tempt us to fight this battle his way. We're always tempted to abandon the weaponry that Jesus has given us for the weaponry that the, that the devil uses. We see this all the time. That's why we have to be mindful of both of these categories. We have to always be mindful of these categories. What is Peter going to do? In fact, Jesus really has a problem right now. As Jesus pulls out that sword, 
And he strikes the ear off of Malchus, who is the high priest's servant. There's a big-time problem. This thing is just about to get deadly ugly. It's just about to become very bloody. We have a big gang of people with swords that are wound up. And here Peter is drawing a sword, making the first move. And we see the awesome sovereignty of God here as he puts this thing down and he heals the servant's ear and he hushes this thing before it gets bloody. Why? Because Jesus' job is to see that not a single one is lost. If you're ever concerned and you're in Christ Jesus and you're ever concerned about loss, go to this passage and look how Jesus protects everyone here. Nobody could have done this. This should have erupted into a bloodbath. It doesn't. It doesn't, does it? So the temptation before us, what we need to get out of this this morning, the temptation before us is there's always, Satan is always trying to lead us into taking up his weaponry. And we need, if we're going to be effective in ministry, we've got to learn how to take up Jesus' weaponry, don't we? I mean, Satan loses this battle, doesn't he? We know the story. Satan loses. He loses miserably. He never had a chance. It's so unlike the boxing ring where there's a chance. There's no chance. Satan never had a chance. He was destined to lose. But Satan continues the fight, doesn't he? If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer, if you're in a state of grace, you know all about the battle. You know all about the battle. Sin is always right there, isn't it? We say in the morning, we're not going to do some of these things. We wake up in the morning, we say, we're not going to do these things, but sin is right there, isn't it? What happens to us? Too often, we try to fight with the devil's weaponry. What is Jesus' counsel to the disciples in the garden? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What exactly should we pray for? Ah, let's pray for the governance and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Father, govern me by way of your Holy Spirit. Christ, govern me by way of your Holy Spirit and guide me. What other weapon we have here? The Word of God. We need the guidance and the governance of the Holy Spirit so that we'll understand the Word of God. And we need to be students of the Word of God so that we have the appropriate weaponry when these hours come, because they're coming, and they have come. And in many cases, we've been bitterly uh, whooped, haven't we? What do we say in conclusion? Well, in conclusion, let's take up this weaponry. Let's take up this weaponry that Jesus is offering us. Let's take this up. Let's pray for the governance and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that we would be people of the book. This battle that we're fighting is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle that's being fought in the heavenly places, isn't it? Let's take this up. Let's remember this. Satan loves a busy church. You've heard that before, haven't you? He loves a busy church, and it's so easy for us to get busy. We're also very busy. But you want to know a church that Satan's afraid of? A church that's on their knees, who is watching and praying and seeking 
the governance and guidance of the Holy Spirit verse by verse in God's Word. That is the church that is effective in ministry. That is the church that caused Satan to flee. Amen? That is gospel weaponry. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we have stared deeply into this garden, O Father. We see that you are victorious in Christ Jesus, but we see that an awful fight took place. It was a fight where Jesus willingly laid his life down. It's a battle where Jesus took love, and he took the arsenal of love. And what flowed out of that arsenal of love, O Lord, he used to easily defeat Satan. But we see it came at a terrible cost to Christ Jesus. O Father, may we learn from this text. May we learn from many other texts, O Father, that we need to be a people who are taking up the weaponry of the gospel, that we would be a people who are watching and praying that we would be seeking you, O Father, verse by verse for your governance, that you would govern our hearts and that you would guide our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. That, O Father, we too, O Lord, would be protected from these hours, O Lord, when we are most vulnerable. So, Father, we do pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.